Hey, Rachel, is that the latest issue of Uncanny X-Men? It sure is, Miles. What's going on? Well, see, the X-Men, now that Cyclops is X-Men, and they're currently kind of terrorists. They're operating underground from the Weapon X bunker. Um, Wait, which Weapon, is, Weapon X? You know, the mostly Canadian military organization. They were putting mutants in concentration camps, so stuff those, like that. So those are the ones who did the genetic branding thing with the big M's on their faces, like Bishop and Layla Miller? Oh, no, 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 no. Those guys are from the Forever Yesterday universe. It's a splinter universe. These guys are from the main continuity, um, and the X-Men are hiding out in, in their old headquarters. Um, so they get a ping on their cobbled together cerebro uh-huh. that a new mutant has manifested Chicago, and they all head down to check it out. But it's not actually a mutant, it's a ruse, and they get attacked by a sentinel. No one's powers work. Uh, oh, that's not good. No, it's really not. But they've got magic along, so that's cool. And she's been studying with Doctor Strange, and... Wait, she... hang on, hang on. Magic? So, Ilyana Rasputin, that's Colossus's little sister, but didn't she die of the legacy virus after she got re-de-aged back in Inferno? Well, sort of, but this one's actually an alternate Ilyana from a parallel universe, so it's cool. What?! Welcome, I'm Rachel Edidin. I'm Miles Stokes. And we're here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the first issue of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we're going to be taking you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our very favorite superhero soap opera. So there's a lot of X-Men, right? 50 years, dozens of titles, literally thousands of issues, and that adds up to a continuity that's complex even on the scale of shared universe superhero comics. What we're going to be doing over the course of, well, a while, is hitting the highlights... Key characters, key stories, the best, the worst, and our personal favorites. We're going to be going in pretty deep, but we're not going to hit everything. After all, the goal here is to cover the series in less time than it'll take you to actually read them all. And for the low, low price of free. So, where do we start? Uh, I guess we might as well start at the very beginning. X-Men number one. So this was 1963, right? Yeah, this is, this is coming out at, at about the same time as Avengers number one. Um, it's fall of that year. Yeah, so at this point, uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and also Steve Ditko, they were creating a lot of comics. This is what's commonly known as the Silver Age of comics, I guess because the Golden Age came before and, you know, metals. Um, Now, at this point, superheroes are still a pretty small part of Marvel's lineup. They're making most of their money off of, you know, romance books, adventure, war comics. All the stuff no one cares about these days, unfortunately. And in come the X-Men, who are, you know, advertised as the strangest superheroes of them all. And basically, and that's pretty strange. <laughs> so the idea is they're a bunch of teenagers, and they live in a house, which is also kind of a school, with this guy named Professor Xavier, who's a bald dude in a wheelchair. Huge jerk. Uh, we'll be coming back to that, like, Huge a lot. Huge jerk. <laughs> Professor Xavier's a jerk. And uh, so they're mutants. Now, that's different than anybody else in the Marvel Universe. You know, the Hulk gets his powers from radiation. Spider-Man's bitten by a radioactive spider. There was a lot of radiation going on so, at this point. So, wait, so what's the difference between a mutant and someone who's mutated? Because, I mean, Spider-Man is a mutant, right? Like, he's, he's been, he's, he gets bitten by a spider, but then he mutates. That makes him a mutant. Uh, so this is sort of the nature-nurture debate of uh, superhero powers right here. So a mutant, the deal, deal is they're born with the X gene, which is not the same as an X chromosome. That's that's different. Some of them have those, too. Uh, that's true. Uh, not not enough. Uh, well, not enough F2. Anyway, point being, uh, so they're born basically with the this random power, like, you know, eye lasers or being able to turn sound into energy or flight or whatever. And uh, that usually triggers at around the time they become teenagers. Now, it's worth pointing out here, because this is going to go back and forth forever, that mutants aren't actually a separate species from humans, no matter what Professor Xavier keeps insisting. The definition of a separate species, something that's, you know, genetically separate, but also can't breed with the parent species and produce viable offspring. Mutants can breed with humans. They can produce kids who can then have kids. 
they're actually just a subspecies. So this actually brings up something really important if you're going to get into X-Men. Suspension of disbelief is your best friend. This shit does not make sense a lot of the time. You just kind of have to go with it. That's not just the science either. X-Men is where continuity goes to die. We will also very much be getting to that. So let's jump into the actual team. Who do we have on the docket when we start? Okay, so uh, the first page opens with Professor X doing his to me, my X-Men thing as he's sitting in a chair with a really ugly blanket on his lap. As he does. He calls in the team, and we get a little demo of each of their powers. So first we have Warren Worthington III, the high-flying angel. And he's pretty much what it says on the tin. He's a dude who flies. He has big wings. That's kind of it. Now, one of the things we're going to keep coming back to is early on in X-Men, like the first couple of issues especially, the characters' personalities are, hey, they're teenagers and they have powers, and that's pretty much the long and short of it. Any kind of a metaphor, any kind of characters you could really connect with, like Spider-Man trying to support his uncle, his Aunt May after his Uncle Ben was killed due to his own negligence, we don't have anything like that yet. No, they're, they're just some dudes. Right. Um, next, we have Slim Summers, Cyclops, who shoots force beams out of his eyes. Wait a minute, Slim Summers? Yeah, so here's the thing. Cyclops' name, if you're familiar with the character, is Scott Summers, but he doesn't actually get called that till issue three because Stan Lee was originally planning to name the character Slim, and I think we can all agree that we dodged a bullet on that one. <laughs> Although we did not dodge any alliteration bullets. We have quite a few of those still. Uh, so then, yeah, we have Bobby Drake. Now, Bobby Drake, Iceman, he's probably the only character at this point who has much of a distinct personality, although his only personality is, hey, I'm younger and kind of immature, and that's about the extent of it. And he's... Basically, I mean, he's called Iceman, but he basically looks like a snowman. He throws snowballs. He throws snow grenades at one point in this issue, which I think is kind of awesome. I'm intimidated. They explode on contact into more snow. Mm -hmm. Um, And Hank McCoy, the beast, who is um, super dexterous, super strong, and has super big hands and feet. Now, Hank McCoy is known mostly later on for being a really smart, really erudite guy, separate from his mutant powers. Um... And so you, you see a lot of play with him with the duality of, you know, the, the, the intellectual and the scientist and, and um, most of the time the beast in combat. In this, he's really just sort of a big palooka. You don't really see him start to take on those characteristics until, again, X-Men number three, which is where things start to kind of come together. Right. So uh, we have those four. They start and it's only a few pages later that we get the fifth member of the core team of X-Men, which is going to be our team of X-Men for quite a few years at this point. Jean Grey. Marvel Girl, who's telekinetic. And at this point, and for most of the series, Jean, for most of at least the first series, Jean Grey's main defining characteristic is that she's the girl. Um, she gets, and I want to talk about this because I feel like Jean Grey like, gets a major short shrift a lot of the time. And she gets written off as sort of this boring character. And I think a big part of that is that for the first, you know, 60 or so issues she appeared in and a lot later, like all she was defined by was was being the girl. Like, she didn't really have much personality outside of that. You know, she was the one who helped with the dishes, and she was the one who everyone hit on, and that was really it. And you see a lot of that really in comics of this era, at least Marvel, that's mainly what what I'm familiar with. But I mean, the Invisible Woman in Fantastic Four, the Wasp and the Avengers, they're the women. Everyone else can have interests and sort of things they do with their lives, and the other characters, they're just defined in context of their relationship with men. Um, and that's something that I, I don't think Jean Grey ever entirely got away from that ori- original bland characterization. Um, and I think that's that's a lot of why she's, you know, been consistently kind of a controversial character over the years. Now, speaking of controversial characters, this brings us to the man at the center of it all, the X and the X-Men, Professor Charles Xavier. Yep. He's uh, he's kind of a jerk. Now, this is something Rachel and I aren't exactly on the same page as. I think he's a dick. I think he's actually arguably the biggest villain of X-Men. And, see, and we're going to come back to this, and I'm going to I'm going to prove it, but not yet. 
We'll, we'll, we'll see if she can prove it or not. I can. Um, but so, Rachel, you mentioned, you keep mentioning X-Men number three as this big turning point. But let's talk a little bit about kind of how the characters are defined there. Well, in X-Men 3, you start to see them kind of disambi- yeah, disambiguate for the first time. Um, you've got Hank, again, starting to actually sound like Hank. Um, and you, you see them split up, I think, for the first time in this series, where they're going off and, and doing things in pairs. So you, you see more of their dynamics other than we're all going to come together, we're going to fight a villain. Um, Speaking of the villains, the blob, there's really no point in summarizing that. They fight the blob, he's a jerk, done. And, and one of the ways in which Professor X is a jerk that's going to come back later is that, as it turns out, he is telling hella lies from the start, specifically about Jean Grey, because she's not actually a newcomer. She trained with him secretly for years to suppress her telepathic ability. That's going to be retconned in later, and... Um, so let's talk, a, let's talk a little bit about retcon. So retcon stands for retroactive continuity. And it's the X-Men's second mutant power. So basically what that is, is let's say a story element set up a certain way, and, you know, months to years later, Stanley or whoever decides, no, actually, it would be cooler if we did it this way. That'll give us more storytelling opportunities uh, later on. Now that's a deliberate retcon. The other thing to know about the Silver Age is that no one there gave a fuck about continuity. They didn't keep track of this stuff. There are a ton of things that are just straight-up continuity errors that rate later got written in like so for example in this issue number one professor x mentions that he lost the use of his legs in a childhood accident a few issues later you'll see a flashback where he is in the korean war walking in his 20s right and actually the x-men movies have this exact same problem i should point out but yeah and uh we we get multiple explanations for just how that happened to professor xavier and i guess the idea is that you're supposed to say okay that's how it really was and ignore the previous stuff marvel's actually got because their silver age continuity is so fucked this thing called a no prize or they used to Right, so a no prize, that stands for no prize, in that you don't get a prize. But the idea was that if you could find a continuity error in a Marvel comic, you could then point it out, but also explain, well, actually, here's why it does make sense if you look at it this way. And then you'd be congratulated, and your no prize would be in the mail, which is to say nothing. I thought you actually got an empty envelope. I like to think you do. I'm going to retcon actual continuity to saying that you did. Once upon a time, but that was before there were budget cuts. Yeah, there's a lot of rationalization in continuity. And again, the X-Men are kind of the heart of that. They've got especially once the time travel comes in. But that's, we're getting way, way ahead of ourselves. (laughs) Right, so for now, literally, um, one of the things I think is interesting about X-Men is that although it doesn't know it at the time, it finds a lot of the stuff that's going to be important, both thematically and content-wise, in issue number one. Um, Most specifically, Magneto, who you may have heard of, he shows up, he is the villain for the very first issue of this new comic. Um, So Professor X is the guy behind the X-Men. He's super rich, he's got a huge mansion, and he uses it to collect mutant teenagers and try to kill them. Um, I, I mean, not officially, but it does tend no, to work out No, that's totally that what he does. He's got, um, now later on, they're going to have something called the danger room, which is where they do their training. Right now, he's just got a living room that's full of spinning blade traps. Well, I mean, we, we do too. Do, do people not? Uh, cool people do. Oh, okay. Well, I, I just figured he was like, like us. But um, actually, yeah, talking about, let's talk a little bit about why Professor X has these kids living in his house and is, you know, doing all this reckless child endangerment. Because he's creepy. Well, more specifically, so they're mutants. We mentioned that. Um, people and so is he. Powers. He's a telepath. He thinks he may be the first one at this point, although t- he's not. And to his credit, he says he's not sure. So at least that doesn't need a retcon. And he's, he's also the least ethical telepath either. Like three issues in, or no, in the second issue, actually, he solves the problem of a criminal by just completely wiping his memory. Mm-hmm. He's a dick. But let, let's talk about um, what's going on here. So one of the things Professor Xavier mentions is that he's bringing the mu- these mutants into his school to train them um, because there's this world that hates and fears them. 
Now, it's interesting because we actually don't see any evidence of that for quite a while within X-Men. Like, they're heroes, and people say, hey, thanks, heroes. And yeah, the, the military lends them helicopters. Right. Um, but this is obviously, this is the central metaphor that I think is why X-Men has uh, stayed so compelling for more than 50 years. Like, the mutants as a, a species, or not species, or Some whatever. Species. Population. Um, yeah. They can really stand in for any oppressed minority group or individual, and the metaphor really, really works. I think it was probably most clearly parallel to civil rights at the time, but gay rights, you can totally bring that in later, or really just alienated teenagers who are going to be a lot of the people reading your comic, you know? A lot of what it's about is, hey, we're we're different. Sometimes people don't like that. How do we handle that? How do we react to a world that's, you know, given us the stink eye sometimes? The trouble with that, and something that I think is important to acknowledge, is that while the X-Men have consistently set themselves up as an allegory for marginalized populations, they very, very rarely actually included members of those populations. So let's say that the X-Men of the 60s are a parallel for the civil rights, which is great, except they're all white kids. All of them. And four of them are men, only one's a woman. Later on, you can go with the gay rights parallel. And again, you have a team where the overwhelming majority are straight, and the only characters who are canonically not are bit characters or villains. Again, that's starting to change a little bit now, but X-Men suffers from something really common to speculative fiction in superhero comics, which is, again, diversity that's mostly allegorical. Uh, If you look at Star Trek, that's certainly going to be the case there as well. We've got Professor X at the center of this, and right off the bat, in the first issue, they also introduce the character who's going to be set up as sort of his equal opposite across across the course of the series. Yes, Magneto, the master of magnetism, or as he calls himself, uh, Magneto, the uh, the marvelous, the magnificent. They really love alliteration. I think it's magnificent. Let me me actually find this panel because (laughs) it's a great line. Point being, um, yeah, so Magneto, who is Magneto? He is another mutant. He's the first evil mutant in continuity. And, and he calls himself, does he call himself an evil mutant or they, did they just call him an evil mutant? I'm pretty sure he's just labeled as such. Yeah, they just call him that. Later on, there's a group who actually calls themselves evil mutants. Well, because, we're, again, yeah. we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. So he's, uh, according to Professor Xavier, he's basically the first evil mutant who's emerged. So he is who Xavier has been training the X-Men to stop. You know, figuring that we're mutants, we should essentially take care of our, our the bad guys in, in our group. Ah, uh, the miraculous Magneto. Oh, that's even better. Wow, he is miraculous. That costume is miraculous. Let's talk about the costume for a bit. Red and purple and a big bullet-shaped helmet and panties over his pants and a giant cape. Oh, like, man. Magneto is amazing. And here's the really amazing thing about Magneto's costume is it is horrible and it has had more staying power than I think any other single costume in the X-Universe. Right, and I, I have to respect that. I think what this really shows is Magneto, he's very full of himself. He also does not give a shit what people think about him. And that works. It does. He so, rocks it. He, he rocks that purple and red. So getting back to the metaphor, um, Magneto's deal is, hey, so I'm a member of Homo Superior, which is, you know, the species or whatever uh, name for mutant kind in X-Men. And he feels that, you know, hey, we're different. Humanity doesn't like us very much. So, you know, let's just, if we're this powerful, let's just go ahead and rule humanity. And at some point, at at other points, that's going to expand into actual straight up genocide where he's like, screw it. Humanity had their chance. Let's wipe them all out. Start fresh. Raise kids with eye lasers. Yeah. But so basically you have these sort of opposed dual perspectives. There's Charles Xavier who believes, no, we should really coexist with uh, humans and we should uh, just make it clear that we can be awesome and that these bad guys don't represent us. And then there's Magneto saying, you know what? That is really too much effort. It's never going to work. Let's just go ahead and save ourselves some time and rule the world. The parallel that gets brought up a lot um, is Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and we are not going to draw on that parallel because it's reductive and incredibly offensive. <laughs> but yeah, really, the, that duality, I think that's what's really going to drive a lot of the philosophical considerations in X-Men from you know the 60s to even the present day. For now, though, Magneto is mostly a really angry guy with a silly hat. 
He's also the epicenter of one of my other favorite things about the Silver Age, which is that no one has any clue how magnetism works. So let's let's talk about some of the ways, some of what magnets can do in X-Men number one. Well, ma- um, in X-Men number one, magnets can create force fields. Uh, yep, magnets can uh, create, they can uh, bring little particles in the air to create a message in the sky that is basically his equivalent of surrender, Dorothy. And he actually signs it in cursive in Iron Filings in the Sky, which I think is very classy of him. Well, he's Magneto, of course. Uh, later on, I think he officially has the power of a magnetic personality. He does. He uses it to hypnotize Warren Worthington's parents into being his friends later on in the series. And like he can he can send a magnetic astral projection Yeah, it's himself. basically telepathy. Magnetism is just whatever the hell we need power as far as Lee and Kirby are, are concerned. And it's it's still pretty dubious. So again, suspension of disbelief. The X-Men's powers don't make a lot of sense. Cyclops' neck should break every time he fires his eye beams. And yet. I should point out that in one issue of the official handbook of the Marvel nope. Universe. Nope. We're going to come back nope. to this. Listeners, we are. No, we're not. Nope. Says. Nope. <laughs> Give me time. Nope. Uh, actually, talking about metaphors and talking about Cyclops, that's something that I really wanted to bring up. Um, so let's look at probably the most successful Marvel character, Spider-Man. Like, right? Are his powers all that interesting? Well, they're kind of cool, and I think everybody plays it swinging around when they're a kid who knows Spider-Man. Dude, he's got radioactive blood. Ah, well, who doesn't? Uh, but the point is, um, what really makes Spider-Man compelling is, hey, he's this kid. He's, you know, there's the, with great power comes great responsibility. That's a character you can see as a character, yes, but also as an archetype. You can identify with this character. You can see how that applies to your own life. It's very powerful. And yeah, they, so Marvel characters... All- often have, you know, those short summary taglines. So the great power with great power comes great responsibility for Spider-Man for X-Men. It's fighting to protect a world that hates and fears them. But uh, yeah, I think one of the sort of microcosms of that, if you look at Cyclops himself and his powers, like this doesn't, again, this doesn't come up until issue three, very little does. But uh, if he isn't wearing his glasses or his visor, his uh, his eye beams, his optical blast are going to shoot out uncontrollably and just destroy whatever's in front of him. And I'm actually going to pull in some uh, brief explanation here because this is written up as basically part of his power set early on, but it's not actually because when other people absorb his powers, they can control them. The reason Cyclops can't is that he has brain damage. Right, and we'll get to, we'll get to that part as we get to that part of the story. Um, that actually becomes a rather important part of continuity. Uh, but for now, the important part is, you know, he's this really straight-laced dude. Like, you'll see a lot of those Stanley thought bubbles about him talking about, you know, oh, Jean could never love me because if I ever take these glasses off, I would hurt her. Woe is me, etc. Um, There's so- also a lot of humble bragging in there. The, I am cursed with these powers that are really awesome. <laughs> oh, Cyclops, I love you. But anyway, um, I think that kind of like just needing to control yourself, having this immense capability, but realizing that if you don't completely uh, keep a lid on it, then you're going to fuck up everyone you love. And so for me, I see this as a, a pretty clear parallel to the appeal of werewolf mythology, you know, the idea that we all have this sort of beast within and it, without kind of the veneer of civilization, without just constantly paying attention, then we're just going to go ballistic and uh, and do terrible, terrible things. Well, first of all, I want to point out that there is an original X-Men who's about that duality specifically, who's Beast. But what I think makes makes Cyclops more interesting, and what makes the X-Men more interesting in general, is that their powers aren't separate things. I mean, with werewolves, you've got a really divided duality. And with the X-Men, you know, they can they can have normal lives, they can go to college, they go about their daily lives, but being a mutant doesn't turn off. It's not something that just happens when they're in the costumes. It's as fundamental to their identities and who they are as, as being human, as having, as, you know, what, whatever else. Uh, can, can we call Cyclops Laser Wolf anyway? We can totally call Cyclops Laser Wolf. Okay, you can hold, you can hold us to this. Laser Wolf for the rest of continuity, for nope. the rest of this podcast. N- on and off, when he earns it. Okay, that's fine, when he deserves it. Good, he, good job, Cyclops. Yeah. Good job, Laser Wolf. 
You know, we keep talking about X-Men number three. I think let's talk a little bit about what changes in there. Well, first of all, again, characters get distinct personalities. Cyclops gets a name. It also um, introduces what I think is one of the most important and enduring motifs of early X-Men. What's that? That is the plaid suit. I knew we were going to come to this. So... Jack Kirby really, really liked to draw plaid suits. He was really, really into it. And in X-Men, and it's, it's kind of subtle, and I don't know if it's a continuity issue or what, but there is this one plaid suit that keeps coming back on different characters. And it's the same one. It's this dark red plaid suit. Um, Cyclops wears it. Iceman wears it. I think um, Angel might wear part of it at some point. Well, you know, he can't fit his wings, I would imagine, into the rest. Yeah, and it just, it just keeps coming back. And I, I love that. It makes me, makes me kind of happy. Oh, I like plaid suits. This brings up something important again about the Stan Lee era of X-Men. Is Stan Lee didn't know what the fuck he was talking about when he was writing Teenagers. Yeah, he especially didn't know what Teenagers were talking about. So you get the usual Stan Lee bombasticism, but you also get just amazing exclamations and words. My favorite from the first one is at one point, um, just out of nowhere, for no reason, Iceman yells, what is it? Yabo. Yabo, right. Now, so I, this, 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 I, we, we sort of went back and forth on whether to bring this up because it really sounds like an ethnic slur. <laughs> but um, I Googled it, actually. And what Urban Dictionary says is just a person that is um, uber keyed up and excited, a go getter and jet setter, uh, a person with more energy and zeal than any, anyone else. So I, I think this should just be the new word for X fans. Yabos. Oh, so, so Iceman, was he actually breaking the fourth wall at this point, addressing the fans? Uh, we could retcon that. I, I, I say we do so. So the other thing about Stanley is that everyone he writes talks like a carnival barker. And this is especially evident in, again, X-Men number three, which features the blob. He's sort of a, a circus freak. And it's got actual carnival barkers. And you're like, oh, oh, this dialogue suddenly sounds perfect. This oh. is great. Oh, he's really good. But the, and then everyone else just talks like that, too. It's also got a giraffe. Uh, the giraffe, a giraffe who eats Iceman's ice cream. Uh, apparently, being an irresponsible kid means you eat ice cream all the time instead of studying. Again, Stanley for breakfast. Were even. you ever a teenager? No, no. He he sprung he sprung full grown from like a marketing campaign. Mustache already on his face. I'm assuming. Uh, he stole that from Jack Kirby. <laughs> um. Okay, so yeah, that's basically uh, X-Men number one, and um, in the future, we're going to be covering a lot more ground with each podcast, but we figured this would be a good opportunity to bring up some of the, some of the big, important parts of what early X-Men looks like. We're mostly going to be going through the series in, um, in order, at least to begin with. For the first 66 issues for the Silver Age, and for a while past that, there was only one X-Men series. Later on, they're going to fracture, and as we move ahead, again, we're not going through this issue by issue for the most part. We're going to skip ahead, we're going to look at storylines, we're going to jump between series as we go. For now, though, we're going to keep it mostly linear. But we're also here for you as a public service, because, again, the explanation of the X-Men, I I think, is is one of those essential areas in which government funding cuts have have cut off the majority of resources. And so we're trying to fill some of that gap as a private institution. I think it's because all the budget's going to the Sentinel Project. Man, those jerks. Stupid Boulevard Trask. So... We hit you up for questions on our blog, which is rachelandmiles.com, by the way, where you can find updates, you can find supplemental materials, and you can find screenshots of some of the panels and pages that we've discussed in every week's episode. And we also hit you up on Twitter and Tumblr. And we got a ton of questions, but there are a few in particular we're going to focus on because we think they dovetail really nicely with today's with today's episode. Okay, so uh, first off, we have a question from another L. On Tumblr. Um, and that question is, how broadly should we define X-Men? Only characters who have been members of a team called the X-Men or members of ancillary teams as well. What about supporting characters? That's a really good question, Al. Um, and we've actually talked about this a lot in context of the podcast. The way we're defining X-Men for our purposes 
is characters, teams, and series that spun directly out of or are directly connected to the team and the institution of the X-Men. So, for example, Excalibur would count, X-Factor would count, X-Force would count. Um, Alpha uh, Flight. Runaways, Alpha Flight would not count. Runaways would not count. Even those, those both have, have mutant characters and those both have some overlap. Their association with the X-Men isn't, isn't a defining characteristic. Okay, so what about characters like, say, Deadpool? Fuck Deadpool. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Longshot. Longshot counts. Longshot didn't start out in the X-Men, but they were his primary association for the majority of the issues he appeared in. Yes, Longshot's my favorite. Longshot is great. Uh, how about Namor, the Submariner? Only when he's actually in an X-Book. Okay. Uh, so, next question. This is from um, Rustin H. Wright on our blog. And Rustin asks... Um, Rustin asks on the next page, uh, yellow? Why in the name of all that looks terrible on cheap paper did their original uniforms have to be so yellow? So I don't know what's going on in Stan Lee's mind other than I must make as much money as possible, but, uh... Alliteration. There's a lot of alliteration going on in Stan Lee's mind. I wish his name was alliterative. It should be. Right? Uh, but anyway, uh, one thing I like about their costumes being yellow, and especially all of their costumes being that sort of, you know, uniform design... Uh, you really get the feeling that they're in a school, they're all working for the same cause. And also, I mean, one of the taglines of the X-Men over the years has been Children of the Atom. Uh, we mentioned earlier that radiation was on everybody's mind during the Silver Age for you know, obvious historical reasons. And I think Professor X, Professor X actually mentions that he thinks that his powers and his mutation resulted from his father's work on the, on the atom bomb. Right. Um, so, uh, to me at least, that kind of a bright yellow-black combination really conjures up images of uh, sort of like the radiation symbols, stuff like that. Even the lines of the costume, the yellow on the black and the way it widens and tapers actually kind of evoke mm -hmm. that. I don't know if it's deliberate or not, but it, it definitely gives that impression. And one kind of cool thing about that is the X-Men just look different than the rest of the Marvel Universe. You know, they're all in bright reds and bright blues for all the heroes. The X-Men thematically are supposed to be kind of on the side. You know, yes, they're superheroes, but they're the ones who people don't quite trust, don't quite see normally. And so I like the idea of that color scheme having been theirs for all of these years. You know, just making it clear that, hey, we like these guys, but they're a little off, maybe. Okay, uh, let's go to our third question. Um, this is from Skipjack. On Twitter. If you were introducing someone to the X-Men, what comic or story arc would you give them? I would probably give them X-Men Season 1. This is a graphic novel that Marvel put out a couple years ago, written by Dennis Hopeless and drawn by Jamie McKelvey. And here's the thing. The Silver Age is definitive, but it's not actually very good. Um, we've talked a little bit about why, but it's also just it's, it's people kind of getting a feel for that. What Season 1 is, is a really good writer and a really good artist going back with all of the years of X-Men continuity and all the established stuff in mind and revisiting and rewriting some of the first few Silver Age stories. I think it covers about through X-Men 4 um, in terms of material because they've got, they've got Magneto, the Vanisher, the Blob, uh, Eunice the Untouchable, and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Mm -hmm. And just covering that briefly in a really, really good, really, really succinct introduction to the first five X-Men and their initial dynamic. And the other thing it does that I really like is it inverts the point of view, and it's actually all from Jean's perspective. So you get a much stronger sense of her as a character. And you get to see the other characters through her eyes, not just her, through, like, the creepy old man Lear. And I think um, one of the other things I like about X-Men Season 1, it really gets across why these five characters, despite having very little personality to begin with, why they've stuck around. You know, why... Each of the five of them, even the ones who are dead at the moment, uh, are still a very large part of X-Men continuity and beloved by the fans. Now, that's if you want to if you want something that sort of evokes the beginning at the beginning feel. What if you want something that's 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 a means to jump into more current continuity? 
So I'd recommend one of two storylines for that. Uh, these are both much more modern. There is a run of uh, New X-Men, that was the title of the book, by Grant Morrison, who you may have heard of. He's done a lot of, uh, of really important and excellent comics work. And this was in the late 90s and early aughts, right? Uh, yeah, early aughts, I believe. And the first volume is called E for Extinction. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's Cyclops, it's Emma Frost, the White Queen. This is what made her a major character. Uh, it's introduced a lot of major characters and bit parts who've since become major characters. I mean, I think Quentin Quire is sort of my go- my go-to for that. He started out in that series. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it really, um, it, it makes X-Men feel modern. It very much acknowledges them in the context of the modern day. It's them almost rebranding themselves within the comic. Um, it's you them know, explicitly rebranding themselves within the comic. Yeah, they're all wearing a lot of uh, a lot of leather. They're more on the street, uh, working with humanity. It's um, the first book that took a really strong visual cue from the um, from the early movies. Uh, yeah, actually, I'm trying to remember which came first, but regardless. Uh, yes, that is an excellent, excellent run with some truly stellar writing. At the time, X-Men was really flagging both sales-wise and just quality-wise, and Morrison really brought it back. Now, what came immediately after that, basically with the same characters and continuity coming directly out of it, was Joss Whedon's run on Astonishing X-Men. Which is one of, I'd say probably one of my like top five runs on, on any X-Book of all time. And it it's weird because it shouldn't be good. This is when you take someone who is coming from another medium— and who is a long-term hardcore fan, the odds of getting a really good book go way down. And this just completely blows that out of the water because it's one of the best X-Men, well, sets of arcs, but one of the X- best X-Men runs of the modern era. Yeah, uh, it, it's basically a direct response to Morrison's run, which uh, we didn't seem to love, but basically saying, hey, you know, we were going for the gritty, leather-clad feel, and let's just remember the X-Men are superheroes. Let's let's just blow the readers and the characters in continuity out of the water with how heroic and impressive and very human they are. If Morrison's run reinvents the X-Men for a modern era, Whedon's run does a great job of bridging that to their roots. Yep. So yeah, basically, uh, Hopeless's X-Men Season 1 for the old stuff, or if you want to jump into the modern era, Morrison and then Wheaton. I think that's all we've got for today. We'll, um, we'll be back next week. Before we do that, some quick acknowledgments. Um, Rachel and Miles Explains the X-Men is recorded um, at the Roseway and produced by Bobby Roberts of Welcome to That Whole Thing, which is a much better podcast by people who actually know what they're doing. You should check it out at welcometothatwholething.com. Thanks, Bobby. Uh, Ming Doyle did our fantastic cover art and pinup. You might have seen it around online. It got um, there's a great breakdown of the process over at the Robot Six blog at Comic Book Resources. Sarah Griffro um, helped us a huge amount with getting our website set up. Um, Indigo Clay helped with um, with the pinup and with the logo design, and has generally just been total badass rock star friend on this. So yes, please uh, join us next week, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be diving back into the Silver Age with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Yeah.